0: Um, If you would please grab your Bibles and open them to Matthew 5, that's where we're going to be this morning. And if you've worshiped with us over the last few months, you'll know that we have been reading through this Gospel of Matthew and looking at it as a Gospel of fulfillment, promises of Christ's birth, his early years, and the start of his ministry made in the Old Testament that are now being fulfilled by Christ in the Gospel that show that this Jesus truly is God with us and who will rescue the people from their sins. And last week, we shifted from a gospel of fulfillment to the greatest sermon ever told. This Sermon on the Mount where Jesus Christ is proclaiming to the crowds, this is what it means to be a disciple of the kingdom of God now and forever. And just as Pastor Matt shared last week, Jesus Christ is the newer and better Moses, both because he's the truer and better lawgiver, but he will also do something that Moses could not. Jesus will help his disciples realize their new old identity. Now, new old probably sounds a little oxymoronic. Some of you are thinking, what in the world is he talking about? Well, let me go ahead and explain. See, it's our old identity because it was planned that way from the start. In the beginning, God set Adam and Eve apart from the rest of creation to be his representatives. But then Adam and Eve consciously chose to sin against God, and things got progressively worse. And then, or after that, a little bit while after, uh, God chooses the nation of Israel to be his chosen representatives set apart to the ends of the earth. They taught people how to follow him what his character was like, of the promises that he has made and will keep to his people. And Moses, hundreds of years after Abraham, as the leader of Israel, is responsible for teaching and guiding the men and women how to do just that. But as we continue to read in the Old Testament, for all of their effort and striving, the people of Israel repeatedly fall short of God's standards. And we call this identity holiness to be set apart from the world in how we live, and to be God's kingdom representatives to the rest of creation. And in God's love for us, this has always been his intention for his people. And because of that, our main idea this morning is that faithful followers of Christ are made for and called to holiness. And though we know what God desires, Leviticus says, be holy as your God is holy, we have to ask the question, Who will lead us there? Who will help us reach holiness? We have seen generation after generation in the scriptures continue to sin and fall short of the glory of God. Even Moses, one of the most humble and godly men to ever walk the earth could not lead Israel there. But remember, we are reading the words of the newer and greater Moses. Jesus Christ, the son of God, who in this Sermon on the Mount invites not just Israel, but anyone who would believe and profess the gospel of the kingdom of God to be the holy and chosen people, the disciples who would represent God to all of creation. And that's what makes it our new old identity. Old in that it was planned that way from the beginning and new because Jesus Christ will now lead us into a life of holiness now and forever. And after laying out the Beatitudes, the qualities that lead to true happiness and fulfillment in the kingdom of God, Jesus gives us two specific examples of what our call to holiness looks like. That if you would find true joy in, that, in the lifestyle of the Beatitudes, as the first two words of our text say, you are. This is who you are and who you are becoming in God's kingdom and with that, let's go ahead and read Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16 together. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, most of you should be familiar with common table salt. It's the only thing Minnesotans use to season their food, besides garlic occasionally. And though we personally know salt as a flavoring agent, it served a much different purpose in the days of Christ. See, salt was not mass-produced and manufactured like it is nowadays. It was mined. People would take these boulders and turn them into rocks that had salt compounds in them. And then they would bring the salt home. They would rub it into various foods to cure it and prevent it from rotting. But eventually, because these rocks weren't pure salt, they would lose their saltiness. And they would be thrown out onto the ground because they lost the purpose they originally had. And just as salt prevents the rotting of meat, so can God's people prevent the moral decay of society. Have you ever stopped yourself from doing something because you realized who was in the room? Or maybe you were two seconds away from losing your cool and you thought, okay, what would Jesus do? I know table-flipping rampage in the temple is an option, but maybe not the best option. As faithful followers of Christ, Jesus' presence and influence gives us pause when we are tempted to sin. We don't want to go against our Savior and our friend, do we? No. And in the same way, men and women of God who pursue holiness can give the world pause when they are tempted to sin. And look, I recognize that this probably makes Christians look and sound legalistic or bent on wrecking people's fun. But can I encourage you to consider for a minute, do I truly love somebody if I am content with their sin? How can I claim to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength and be indifferent to the sin that is destroying his very good creation? Church, we were rescued from the world. We should crave to look different than the rest of the world. We should yearn to influence others for and towards the glory of God. If I'm willing to lose my saltiness just to fit in with a sinful culture around me, what's the point of my salvation? I don't show the world that Jesus Christ is real, that he's better, that he's worth giving our lives to by looking the exact same as what I was rescued from. Another thing that we should consider about salt and what these men and women who originally sat under Jesus' teaching would have understood is that salt has a purpose of being both distinct and influencing. Salt is distinct because it's markedly different from the food that it's trying to cure. And because it's different, it has the purpose and capacity to protect food from rot. But salt also influences food too Because it's not just sprinkled on like we do to our own food nowadays. To cure something, wounds, food, or otherwise, you have to rub the salt in there. It has to get underneath the surface. And just as salt has distinction and influence, so should faithful followers of Christ pursuing holiness. We look different than the rest of the world in the way that we live, talk, interact with one another, But we also influence the world by being engaged in what and who are around us. Because how can you plan to influence a broken culture if you stay wrapped up in the safety of your Christian bubble and never talk to people who know Jesus or don't know Jesus Christ? How do you expect to show people the real hope and life that you have in Christ if you never have those kinds of conversations in your offices, in the store, at your home? And... Look, you don't have to go searching in clubs and bars and other places to look for people to influence. There are plenty in the natural rhythms of your day-to-day life that God has placed there specifically for you to influence for the glory of God. Y'all, people shouldn't be shocked to find out we're Christians only on Sundays and Wednesdays. People shouldn't be surprised when we invite them to men's events and to prayer gatherings. If people are surprised that we follow Jesus, it might be a sign that we are losing our saltiness, forgetting or even forsaking our purpose and calling to be holy. And I want to express, I know that following Jesus can sometimes be difficult, but I promise you that it's not complicated. You don't have to have this well-manicured gospel presentation ready at the hip whenever somebody who doesn't know Christ comes along to talk to you. Many of you will go to your places of employment tomorrow. Many of you will have conversations with your friends who either need encouragement or don't know Jesus, and they're gonna ask you, how was your weekend? And you know what you get to say? Oh man, my weekend was so good. The Lord was so kind. I got to hang out with my friends, my spouse. I got to eat lunch with my kids. Or you could also be very honest and say, man, you know what? My weekend was really hard, but I'm so grateful God loves me. Those simple statements are what help faithful followers of Christ be distinct from the rest of the world and help influence, or influence society away from moral decay and towards the real life worth living in the gospel. One of meekness, one of mercy, one of peace one where you and I hunger and thirst for righteousness because we know the truth that life alone is found in Christ's kingdom. And so Jesus compares holiness to salt, but he makes a second comparison, and that is light. In verse 14, he says, Disciples, you, the holy and chosen people of God, you are the light of the world. Now, if you've ever attempted to traverse a dark room or you got lost in the middle of the woods searching for a deer, I don't say that from personal experience, but uh, you'll know the benefit that light gives to us. It prevents us from running into things. It helps us to avoid stepping on Legos sometimes, right? But it also reveals what's going on in the world around us. And just like salt, light is readily available to us in 2023 because of the invention of electricity. But of course, back in Jesus' day, they did not have that. And so they used all kinds of light sources from uh, candles to lanterns, torches and bonfires. And look, these were not like the LED headlights that blind you on 371 and 210, right? These were open flames that gave off just enough light. And so to maximize their effectiveness, people would find the spot in the house to place these lamps where they would cover the most space and give off the most light. And because light wasn't readily accessible, well-lit cities on a hill like Christ references in verse 14 were like stars in the sky. They could be seen for miles. But what's interesting for us is that Jesus declares in Matthew 5 what we just read, that the holy and chosen disciples of God are the light of the world. But if we read in John 8, Christ refers to himself as the light of the world. And I understand that this may sound contradictory, right? How can God and man both be light, but it actually makes sense? Can I ask you a question? Have you ever stared at the sun before? How'd it go for you? That's what I thought, right? See, the sun is so bright and powerful that staring at it for 100 seconds, which is about a minute 40, it will permanently damage your eyes. But aside from directly staring at the sun, there are many other ways that we can understand just how bright the sun is. And one such example of this is looking at the moon. The light that we receive from the moon is a palatable reflection of the great light that we receive from the sun. And in the same way, our holiness, church, when we live out set apart and representing God for who he is, we are a reflection of the light that is given off by our glorious God. Light is distinct from darkness because they are literal opposites. And in the same way, holiness is a literal opposite of sin and depravity. Light influences darkness because it fills the dark space, casting it away and revealing what is going on in the world. And faithful followers of Christ, we influence the darkness by revealing truth, showing that Jesus Christ is the only way to true life and freedom and living in such a way that our light can be seen to those all around us because what's the point of light church to shine right you know the sunday school song this little light of mine yeah there's some joy in the house of the lord today right you wouldn't try to light up your house by covering the light source would you so why in the world are we trying to cover up the light that's inside of us Just as we were rescued from the world, we are here to bring light to the world as well. And we shine as faithful followers of Christ by being holy, filled with good works, poor in spirit and pure in heart, mourning with those who mourn and rejoicing with those who rejoice. And it's not for our own kingdom. It's not for our own clout but it is in such a way that everything we do is for the glory of God. And that's the aim of holiness, church, that we would be distinct from and influencing to a broken and sinful world and that we would do so in such a way that it brings glory to God, that people would be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ because they see us living differently and for something better than this dark world that is wasting away did you know that there is a world out there that is in desperate need of something different than their present circumstances? And I would imagine that there are some people in this room who are not quite unlike the people at the Sermon on the Mount who feel the same way. They crave joy. They're desperate for peace. They are hoping to find something that can just give them a sense of feeling of life. And as salt and light, As holy and faithful followers of Jesus Christ, it is our great privilege to live in such a way that we point to the only one who can give them that different and better in Jesus Christ. And so we understand that holiness, it's both our identity and purpose. We just read holiness is salt and light, and and that's good, right? We need helpful categories to help us understand how we live out this new old identity and purpose that God has for us. And yet we still have to answer the question, how does Jesus get us there? How is Jesus going to lead us to holiness and the promised land when countless generations of people failed? Well, if we continue to read a little bit further, Christ is kind to give us some clarity on that. So will you read Matthew five seventeen through 20 with me, please? But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So at the time of Jesus' ministry, the people assumed that the Messiah, the promised Savior of the world, would be more of a political and military deliverer somebody who would crush the Romans and reestablish the glory of the kingdom of Israel. And so you can imagine, along comes Jesus. He's doing all of these miraculous things. He's garnering up a ton of influence, and people are naturally curious, could this be the Messiah? Could this be some extraordinary man who will help us reclaim our rightful place as God's chosen people? And because of that, they are hinging on the words that Jesus Christ has to say. And so when he preaches, people are wondering how these new teachings naturally fit into the law and the prophets of the Old Testament that many of them would have learned from childhood. And Christ is pretty clear. I'm not here to abolish the law. In fact, the law is here to stay until heaven and earth are no more. The law provides good categories for how we should live, how we care for one another, how we honor God, But the problem is, is that the law also teaches us what not to do. And because of our sinful nature, we are inclined to disobey it. If you've ever told a toddler or a teenager, don't do something, what's the one thing on their brain? I have got to do the thing they told me not to do. (laughs) And in verse 19, Jesus asserts that even faithful followers of Christ are prone to look at parts of the law and relax on following them. We hold fast to commandments like do not murder and do not steal. Those are good, Jesus. But if a little lie helps me get out of an argument with somebody, it's not going to hurt, is it? Look, like I know the law says don't covet, but have you seen my neighbor's new speedboat? Like, I got to get me one of those. If I sit up here in the pulpit on Wednesday nights and I tell our students you have to honor your mother and father... But I don't equally encourage them to be faithful in their future marriages. I am relaxing on the law, and I am teaching others to do the same. And Christ makes it clear in verse 19 again, that even the least of the laws, if anyone relaxes on them, and if anyone teaches others to do the same, it will be reflected of them in eternity. But for those who remain faithful to the law, even when it's inconvenient and uncomfortable, They will be called great in the kingdom. Because church holiness doesn't shirk the law. It upholds the standard God has for his people. Salt doesn't promote decay. It slows it down. Light doesn't conceal things. It reveals them. But probably the most staggering thing that Jesus says is in verse 20. He says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, that's a tough pill to swallow. Now, we tend to view the Pharisees as the villains of the gospel story. They're self-important men who were callous to the suffering around them, all in the name of promoting their own brand of following God. But to the people that Jesus was preaching to, The Pharisees were the pinnacle of righteousness in Jewish society. Think about the pastors in your own life, celebrity or not, who are personally influential to you, that you hold in high regard. The Pharisees were just like that to these people at the Sermon on the Mount. And so you can imagine that when they heard Jesus say such a thing, that you have to be more righteous than the Pharisees, they were gravely concerned. Jesus, how am I supposed to exceed the standard? This is impossible for me to do on my own. The good news for us is that the implications of our righteousness and our holiness and consequently our own salvation, they don't fall to us, but to what Jesus says in verse 17. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus Christ does not simply teach us how to be moral, how to follow the law, live a good life, say the right things. He leads us to holiness by fulfilling the law on our behalf. And even better still, we have the privilege of knowing the rest of the story that these people did not. See, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, willingly left his throne in heaven to be born in human flesh And he grew up toddler, teenager, adult, and he, all the while, lived a perfect and sinless life. And because of this, he was fit to pay the price of your sins by dying on the cross and shedding his own blood for you. And when he died for your sins, he became sin, who knew no sin, so that you could become righteous. That you could become the fulfillment of the law, that you would be made right or justified. In the sight of God, sin has no claim over the lives of those who are in Christ Jesus. And after he died, Christ was buried in a tomb, and three days later, he not only conquered sin for you, he conquered death on your behalf as well, so that you could know what it means to truly live. And if you believe the truth of this gospel, and you profess your need for God's free gift of salvation in your life, you will be saved from sin and death. And not only will you be gifted freedom, you will be gifted eternal life. And you will be gifted the Holy Spirit that will transform you and help you gain the desire to be salt and light, distinct and influencing from the life that you just left behind. And this is the difference between morality and holiness, church. You might be able to live a moral lifestyle on your own merit, But holiness requires something much greater than your effort. It requires the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, fulfilling the law on your behalf. And remember, holiness is not by our own efforts, right? The Holy Spirit who dwells in every faithful follower of Christ, he will help you comprehend what it means to be holy. He will give you the strength and the endurance and every good thing to live out this new old identity and purpose that God has gifted you. Jesus Christ did not die to make you morally upright. He died to make you holy and transformed. Can I ask you a question, church? Actually, can I plead with you for a second? Stop trying to be good enough for God and surrender to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Stop trying to work and scheme your way into heaven and and use all these good works to be a good person to the Lord and rest in the assurance that Jesus was, is, and will always be enough to lead you to the righteousness and holiness that he's called you to. Because when we stop trying to be good enough for God, when we stop trying to do things on our own and we give God his rightful place on the throne of our lives, we start to rely on his power to be conformed into the image of his son. We start to rely on his goodness to live the holy life that he has called us to. In other words, surrendering to Christ is the beginning of holiness, and it opens up an entirely new life to us. Surrendering to Christ helps us to be salt, not salty, because we, of course, are trying to prevent the moral decay of society, but we know that it is our sweet savior who will save the people from a bitter world. And yes, we want to show people how great life with Jesus is now and forever, but we do, don't do so by our own efforts. We do so by reflecting the goodness, the peace, the joy, the gentleness of our good Father whose image we bear. And surrendering to Christ, it helps our light to shine so that not that we blind others or we overbear them, rather we shine so that people can clearly see the way to our glorious Father. Surrendering to Christ helps us to forgive our church family when they hurt us because Christ is worth it. That's his bride. It helps us to resist temptation because we know Christ alone can satisfy the cravings of our heart that sin tries to trick us into fulfilling. It helps us to show mercy and grace to those who wrong us because even as his enemies, Christ was merciful and gracious to us. It helps us to speak truthfully and kindly and plainly It helps us to have patience in our jobs, faithfulness with our families, peace in our routines. It helps us to find true satisfaction in the Beatitudes because Christ says we are blessed in those practices. If the aim of holiness is to glorify God by being distinct and influencing on culture, then the mark of holiness is surrendering to Christ. Stop trying to represent God in the way that you think is best and let him be the one to guide you. He is for your good. He is for your holiness. He will help you get there because even after countless generations of people failed, Christ was still faithful to his people. It's why he died on the cross for you. It's why he rose again for you. And not only did he do that, but he did something that no man can, could, or ever will be able to do. He fulfilled the law on your behalf so that you could become the righteousness of God. And that's a God I'm willing to place my life in, amen. If you claim to know Christ as Lord and Savior, this is your identity and purpose. To be the salt of the earth that helps people resist the decay of sin. To be the light of the world that reveals the glory of God. To be distinct from a broken world and yet influencing it as an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. Faithful followers of Christ's church, are made for, and called to holiness. And it's not by our own success which we're going to find ourselves there, but simply by surrendering to Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law on your behalf, who died and rose again for you, and who loves you dearly even to this day. Be holy as your God is holy. It's who you were always created to be.